Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Power blackouts. They happen every year. But guess what, blackouts? You've met your match. Say hello to Goal Zero, the leader in affordable home power backup systems and solar generators. Goal Zero's generators power your fridge, freezer, lights, Wi-Fi, TV, and more with clean power. Their home backup systems, like the Yeti 3000X, have no fuel, no fumes, no noise, and no maintenance. Just good, clean energy that keeps your home up and running. They offer a range of products and affordable price points, from power stations that can provide a half day's worth of power, to solar generators and home backup systems that can keep you powered for one, two, or three days. Plus, they're all portable, so you can take your power with you when you go camping, tailgating, and more. So yeah, take that, blackouts. Our power is here to stay. Have peace of mind when blackouts hit. Go to GoalZero.com to learn more. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. So, Mara, I've gotten some letters from Days fans lately who are not super keen on the Haley immigration story. So it's not about the players involved, who I think have all done a great job. And it's not that it hasn't sparked some interesting story, which it definitely has. I mean, who thought Olivia Keegan would emerge as the star of it? But the fans' issue is really the ripped-from-the-headlines element of it. You know, they feel they see enough stories in real life about immigration in the United States and, like, they're not tuning into their favorite show to watch it there. But, you know, real life has always been an inspiration for stories. And then you have to ask the question, does it cross a line where it doesn't feel like entertainment anymore? You know, I I think in many cases the answer is yes. Um, If Haley's story is really kind of a green card marriage story, those aren't new to soaps. But the climate around the issue of immigration, I think, is charged today in a way that it wasn't when, say, Robert infamously married Holly on GH in 1983 so that she wouldn't have to go back to Australia. You know, it is such a hot button topic in 2019 that I don't know that any show could really go there in a way that would be pleasing to everyone in the audience. Obviously, I think when soaps tackle social issues, they're looking to mine the interpersonal drama that sort of surrounds whatever the issue is. But I kind of wonder if that can't be well done in some other way. Well, so let's start here. I like reality on soaps. You know, I like to watch stories that feel relatable to me. I always say that family drama, relationships, romance, infidelity, death, illness, you know, as tough as some of those may be, are why I watch soaps. It's the whole theory of catharsis, of getting a break from your own problems by watching the characters deal with theirs. 
But if I look back at what drew me to to these shows in the first place, it was for sure romance and generational storylines. You know, I tend not to be drawn to more fantastic tales, if you will, or ones that feel to be mirroring exactly what's going on in the world. And, you know, perhaps that makes me basic. Well, I think those are the basics of soaps, and, and I'm right there with you. Now, there's another sort of rip from the headlines story on Daytime right now, which is the sex cult story on GH. That certainly seems to be inspired by real-life events. But uh, we could get such a drinking game going with Dawn of Day or DOD. <laughs> totally. And I just have to say how much it amuses me, how sometimes when stories like this are told, and, and I love an umbrella story, but you know how... You know, just suddenly everyone in town is reading the book or taking the seminars. That just gives me a chuckle. Um, when I think of, you know, my favorite social issue storylines, and as I think I've said before, you know, my taste aligns with yours when it comes to the types of stories that most appeal to me. But I guess I sort of feel like I want a carefully, masterfully told social issue storyline or none at all. Um when I think about the AIDS storyline on General Hospital, which is one of my all-time favorites, there was a nuance there. You saw an evolution in people's perspective on the disease uh, because GH really committed to telling that story slowly. And ultimately, you saw the whole town come together and rally to the side of this young man who was dying. So again, that ultimately was a social issue storyline, yes. But uh, really, it was about the people that were touched, uh, their relationships, and it didn't feel preachy or pedantic. And I think actually, right now, the story that GH is telling with the young character um, of Aiden, I think, is being really well done that way, where they're not taking a side or a position, but they're exploring something that touches families. Um, and, and I'm, you know, really digging the emotional aspect of that tale. Well, I think what you're seeing about the Haley story are those relationships. You know, it's more about Haley and JJ being kept apart, Claire and Tripp being kept apart, and how it's unraveling Claire, who's lying about setting the fire, you know, even more. And then you have Jack and Jennifer and Eve on the other side of it. And like, when will he get his memory back? So the immigration issue is not really the issue, if you will, but it has certainly prompted response from the audience. You know, and what's funny about you saying how everyone in town is suddenly, you know, taking seminars or talking about DOD, it's totally like the flow and storm reveal on B&B. I mean, we had the Logan sisters gathering and like suddenly reminiscing about Stormy. <laughs> and there were, you know, flashbacks aplenty to remind you of him. And, you know, Ditto right now with Daisy's Eric talking about Nicole being the love of his life because Ariane Zucker is making her way back to Salem next week. And actually, I spoke to the actress for an interview in our new issue, so be sure to check that out. Uh, well, another beautiful blonde who is making a return to daytime next week is M. Rylan as Lulu on GH. And I just wanted to throw that in there because I know when she went off to Paris recently, kind of out of the blue, people were curious about how long she'd be away. And the answer is not long. Well, that is a relief. <laughs> so speaking of GH and actually every other show in daytime besides Days, our guest today is Ken Schreiner, who is best known for playing Scotty Baldwin, but certainly has made his mark all over the soap landscape. So let's get him on the phone to talk about it. Hi, Ken. Hello, girls. Well, let's start at the beginning. Um, tell us about Ken Schreiner before General Hospital came around. Uh, what were you doing before your, your first soap job? Uh, well, let's see, you know, I grew up, I was born in New York, uh, moved to Hollywood as soon as I heard about it, uh, came here at 20, turned 21 on Dino's on Sunset Strip, was studying with a lady by the name of Lillian Chauvin, who was, uh, had, um, worked so many jobs as she was one of the first women in film that started the whole women in film movement back in the 70s and 
she had worked on The Young and the Restless, so <clears throat> she taught actors to kind of that type of uh, three-camera. She taught a, a class on camera, so we were like, which is the best way for an actor to learn whatever bad habits they might have. Uh, you know, the camera is right there uh, telling you, wh why are you doing that? So anyway, that's what I did. I um, studied, I studied, got under contract to Universal Studios, where I did multiple jobs. They put you under contract and they paid you a weekly salary, and um, thus they could put you in anything that was at Universal. I got to work with Gregory Peck. I got to work with Raymond, my idol, Raymond Burr. Wow. So there's a lot of fun jobs that I got to do as a contract player, but they... But uh, that was maybe the last year of the contract system. They kind of got rid of that. And then then I auditioned. I guess I met for General Hospital. And um, that was then I, I got I got two shows, August 2nd, August 4th, 1977. And then they were going to decide what they were going to do or not do. So. Um, that's my story. What do you remember about the audition? You know, there was a producer at the time by the name of Tom Donovan, and, uh, he, you know, I don't think I read anything. I think I just met him. He talked to me and talked about the, that there was going to be a, that, uh, I was estranged from my father, Lee, I was like a kid living in Greenwich Village, and that uh, uh, Susan Brown, Gail was going to come get me and try and talk me into coming back to Port Charles because uh, uh, Lee was wanting to, you know, wanted his son back, and so I think that was the setup. But um, so then, you know. I got the job, uh, and you know the the the, the, I, the show was it had gone to color, but it was only forty five minutes. Uh, I think they had gotten rid of the organ music, uh, <laughs> and then uh, they thought, well, hmm, Ken and Jeannie might be able to fill that fifteen minutes, and they went to an hour. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us about Jeannie. What are your early memories of her? Um, how she, because, uh, you know, when they're kids, they have to, they kind of put their, well, no, now I got to go, go back because we were live on tape. So there was, you know, we shot the show at 2 o'clock and at 2.45 it was done. It was before they went to an hour. So all actors were in each sets, and I didn't really work with Jeannie in those first two shows. I worked with uh, Susan Brown and uh, Peter Hansen, and so then when Gloria Monty came on and took the show to an hour and we moved to the Desilu Studios, I started working more and more with Jeannie, and then they were... Um, they started the editing process where they didn't stay in order. 
they they moved around, and because she was you know young, they had to shoot her first. So so she was always loaded up with like a lot of dialogue, like she'd have you know four or five scenes with me, four or five scenes with Denise Alexander, and so it was like, geez, she's got all this work. Uh, so she was very, uh, you know, and then she had school and she had the teachers, and so it was kind of like, you know, but she was so good and professional and was handling, you know, real heavy-duty dialogue and playing stuff that, you know, her father was an actor, so she, I guess she, it was in her family, and so, you know, she had, already had the, the chops of, of, she could do it. She came out, you know, came onto the show, I mean, she was already in, she was there about three, three, four months before me, so she was already, uh, you know, had it down. So Scott and Laura, uh, Fell in love, make, got married, and then their romance got a very big shakeup in the form of Tony Geary joining the show as Luke. Oh, we don't like to mention his <laughs> name. All right. Well, he who should not be named. What stands out to you about that era in Scotty history? Well, you know, as the history books will go, uh, at the time I had an agent and uh, Paul Roush was kicking off a big show called Texas and the... GH was very, was going, starting to go through the roof. You know, we were starting to get a lot of attention. And my contract came up before Jeannie or Tony's, so they came after me and made me a deal I couldn't refuse that went, took me to New York to do. And I was young, and it was like, wow, I'm going to go live in New York and be a New York actor. And I, I, I didn't quite know where the, the show Texas, I didn't know that it was going opposite General Hospital. I didn't know much of anything except that my agent said, this is, you can't turn this down. And so, you know, off I went to, uh, and so that kind of ended the Scotty Laura business and allowed the Luke Laura business to go for me to return a year later to, you know, now as a disgruntled, angry, bearded man uh, over the whole thing. So, did that answer the question? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. let's. We talk- all know this history. You guys know this history, but I guess the people aren't listening to the iP- the podcast may that, not know it. Well, we want to hear you tell it. That's why. Oh. Um, so let's talk about though. Really, Scotty, as you know, a character on GH like really took off. You were on magazine covers and just like the hottest thing in daytime. You know, what was that like for you? Did you lose your anonymity? What was the experience like of sudden fame? Uh, well, you know, uh, Jeannie Francis and I were at, were down in Fort Lauderdale somewhere in the late 70s. She had an aunt down there, and I was down there because I grew up in Fort Lauderdale. And we were there at the same time, and I we went to dinner, and some people said came up to the table and said, can we get an autograph? And, and we said, sure. And then we looked, and... There was a line of people all the way out the restaurant down the block, and it was like, ah, well, but we must be doing something right. We didn't really know that the show was that popular in the late 70s until things like that started happening and everybody was starting to watch it because, you know, we were just going in five days a week and doing our business, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, the show, so we didn't, 
you know, it's not like in L.A. where you're on a hit show. Uh, you know, soap operas are still, you know, not um, the desirable job uh, most actors in, uh, in L.A. want to be movie stars, you know, nighttime stars, anything. So we, we were not aware that this, this now was a soap opera that had gone through the roof uh, with the, with everybody. All of a sudden, you know, people were, you know, running home to, from school to watch it. So, and, you know, they were running home to watch Jeannie, who was going through so much. And she was really the, the catalyst of the, the popularity because kids that would be forced to watch it with their parents all of a sudden said, well, that girl's about my age. What's her problems? And then their, her problems became their problems, and they were hooked. And then, you know, then there was a couple of guys, you know, and it was me and Tony and, you know, and later, Robert Scorpio. So, <laughs> you know, that's the whole deal. And uh, But, you know, we were very much... Uh, we not only worked every day, but we also hung out every day. We had a uh, a roller rink that we used to go to at nights, and we uh, that was a big thing in those days. And you know, Tony used to love to skate, and we all skated, and then we'd go into General Hospital. And uh, uh, I think I taught Jeannie to roller skate because we had a roller skate on our honeymoon when we got married, and we did that first location shoot in the history of uh it was the first location shoot ever done on a soap opera we have pictures of you guys on roller skates yes 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 i have a picture of me in the rehearsal hall teaching her how to skate uh i don't think she she, she that wasn't something she was able uh but i did teach her to roller skate yes you're really living that 70s dream i'm just i'm just trying to picture that roller rink well, how much fun that must have been! So, well, I tell you what, it was more fun than you than, than I let on because it was actually <laughs> the late seventies, early eighties. It was a an old bowling alley on La Cienega in Hollywood here, and then they turned it into a roller rink. And when that craze was on, disco, roller skating, we they served alcohol. And I don't know what insurance policies they had, but you know, <laughs> there they were. Uh, People were, you know, drinking kamikaze shots and putting on roller skates and, you know. Uh, a great combination. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, I never broke an arm. I, n- I never had any accidents. But, Thank God. Uh, other people, I think, went down. I mean, it was, a, it was, it was kind of a, uh, crazy and it was fun and it was a, a great time and it was, right across the street from where I lived, so I could go over there. But, you know, we stayed out way too late, and we had to be back at General Hospital at 7 in the morning. So, But we were young. Youth was on our side. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about uh, when you left the show in, in 1980 to play Jeb on Texas. Uh, and, you know, as we talked about, came back a year later to GH. But what was your experience on Texas like? Um, well... It was it was fun. I you know I got to the the maybe the first month. Uh, I had all of these actors said we should all get a, a house in Amagansett for the summer. So like three or four actors, we all pitched in, and we were going to spend our weekends up in Amagansett on the on the you know up in the Hamptons. And 
the very first weekend I got up there, uh, I was riding a bicycle with my co-star at the time, Karen Richmond, who ended up going on to become uh, Gidget on the Gidget series. But uh, we rode, we were riding bikes. It was 4th of July. The bike chain snapped, and I went over the handlebars, <coughs> broke my arm, and it was horrible because they had to call a guy in off the golf course, and, I, you know, I don't know what that was, but uh, <laughs> so they had to put a plate in my, my hand and this cast, and I remember that Truman Capote was in the uh, room next to me. What? And, yeah. <laughs> oh and God. then uh, next thing I knew that I was back at, at uh, you know, on at work, and they were like, oh, Jeb fell off his horse. And <laughs> so I had this stupid cast for about six, seven weeks. And but I don't think Texas ever really found itself and what they were what what was really the show. I mean, it went on to what did it get two or three years before they canceled mm-hmm. it? I, I don't I don't know. I was only there for a year, and I was there with Paul Roush. And when Paul Roush left, another producer came on by the name of Gail Kobe, and I'm not sure we got along too well. And you know, and she said, "You just want to go back to General Hospital." I said, "Well, that's not true, but." Yeah, I would rather be on General Hospital <laughs> than this show. And I had, you know, realized what a blunder I made by going to do this in the first place, as, you know, uh, GH, you know, is now headed through, you know, it was, you know, now, you know, their bus cover, uh, uh, Newsweek, and, you know, what am I doing over here in Texas? Breaking arms. Breaking <laughs> arms, yes. <laughs> Um, now, a lot of people talk about how scared they were of the show's then-executive producer, Gloria Monty. You know, you've said that you've always had a good relationship with her. So what was your experience like with her? Um, you know, Gloria was a wonderful – she I, she just always thought that I was funny. She, I always made her laugh, and she just had such a funny sense of humor. And But, you know, I had taken her to – we had gone to lunch – and we were, I, I had a Jeep at the time, and um, I said, she said, Ken, we've got such a great story coming up for you with Jeannie and, you know, and Tony. And, and I had to break the news to her that, uh, you know, I just made this deal, or my agent made a deal for me to go to New York. And so she wasn't too pleased about that. And then I had to drive her home. And, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, so she was, she, she was a little mad as a hornet over the whole thing. But again, it, it, a year later, she, she said, well, he's an asset. Let's bring him back. So it wasn't hard feelings. It was just that I had kind of, you know, again, I was reminded how, what a big mistake I had made. Well, so then what was it like when you came back? I mean, at the time you came back, Luke and Laura's wedding, you know, was seen by 30 million people. I mean, that's like the hugest, you know, not only daytime show, it's like one of the hugest shows in television as a whole. So what was that like for you to even just Yeah, well, I again? came back and they stashed me in this trailer and uh, in the trailer, in the back of the trailer, this guy comes out and says, hello, May, I'm Tristan Rogers. And I said, oh, yes, Tony spoke highly of you. How you doing? And then... You know, they wanted, this was, you know, long before social media, but yet Gloria really wanted to keep it uh, hidden until I really, you know, caught that bouquet and said, that is no wedding. So it was a big hush-hush thing, and 
you know, instead of me winning the fights against Luke, now he's winning the fights. And that's, you know, like, oh, now I get beat up. Instead, I used to beat him up. So, uh, you know, but I was back in the game and then back in General Hospital, and the Scotty character became, you know, more fun to play because now he had a, you know, he had a bit of a, you know, he was very, uh, which gave a lot of material for Peter Hansen, you know, mm-hmm. because it was, you know, my son is, you know, he shouldn't have been, you know, doing the wrong thing all the time. He's a scoundrel. Scoundrel, yes. I loved those scenes. Any scenes that you ever had with Susan and Peter were just always so amazing. You know, and the they were, I hung out with Susan and I, you know, really socialized a lot. She helped me put my house together. We had breakfast every weekend. Uh, Peter flew us in his little plane um, to Mammoth. I thought we'd never make it. And, you know, <laughs> it, it was, the funny thing about it uh, now, uh, Ricky Dean Anderson, it was Jeff Weber at the time, and I were in the back of this little Cessna, and we hit some turbulence, and we thought, oh, boy, this is curtains. And, you know, Peter was, you know, cool as a cucumber flying. And then when Peter passed away and I went to his memorial service, the uh, the priest said, you know, uh, of course, made a soap opera joke about, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't watch soap operas. You know, I work during the daytime and I was sitting there with Rachel Ames and we looked at each other like, oh, my goodness, he's making a, a, a soap. Anyway, the, the priest that was giving Peter's eulogy talked more about his military career and his, uh, he was a bit of a, uh, a a hero flyer as a as a as a pilot in the air force, and so, but Peter never spoke much about that while we were, you know, working. And I'm thinking that you know here we are in the back of that plane, and we we got a you know we got a war pilot flying us like we're like he doesn't know what he's like with it does this actor know what he's doing with us you know but it was so <laughs> stupid because you know he this was nothing to him he, nobody was shooting at him <laughs> right you had no idea what good hands you were in no we did not i found that out you know 40 years later yeah um so so like going chronologically through the years here you you popped back into gh for several years and then came rituals uh, yes, Rituals, I was another a, lost show. I was a big fan of Rituals, I will tell you. <laughs> well, where, 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 when it was on at 8 o'clock, 8.30, yeah, 2.30, yeah, that, 5.30? No, that... I mean, it, was, it ended up people <laughs> eating oatmeal watching it. No, I don't know what time it ended up. at 8.30 in the morning, you know. It, it never had its day, you know. Uh, but, you know, there were such, so many odd actors, including, you know, Ginger from Gilligan's Island to... Uh, George Lazenby from, the, you know, The Bond to, uh, you know, Monty Markham to, you know, uh, you know, Mary Beth Evans to John Lindstrom. I mean, there was a lot of different people that uh, came through those rituals doors. Mm-hmm. What do you remember about just even working on it? Like what made you join? Uh, well, it was billed as a first primetime, nighttime soap opera that so instead of being a daytime soap opera it was now they were going to try its hand at a at you know every uh at 8 30 on fox 
So it was like, that, that was, oh, so somehow I'm still doing a soap opera, but I'm now going to be a nighttime star instead of a daytime star. Sounds good, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but it just didn't work. It worked for Stephanie. Yes, it did. It certainly <laughs> worked for me, I will tell you. Well, you know, it's uh, the, the producer, Jorn Winther, who just recently passed away, you know, he produced it. And then he again hired me to do another show with him in Canada called Family Passions. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was uh, a very funny guy and he was very... Uh, I enjoyed, you know, you know, I I probably worked with just about every producer that's ever produced a daytime soap opera, you know, over the years, because, you know, from Paul Roush to, you know, Gail Colby to Jorn Winther to, you know, Jill Phelps and so on and so forth. You know, I've been under, uh, I've worked with them all. (laughs) Well, you must be doing something right because you keep getting hired. (laughs) <laughs> I guess I, I guess I must be, uh, um, or I just keep moving, you know, and and they, you know, we could, I just keep taking, you know. Oh, I'll, I'll do that. Okay, I'll I'll go there. <laughs> well, I mean, it that is if you argue why people become actors to play different roles, you know, I think daytime could sometimes be like golden handcuffs where people, you know, stay because it's a great gig, but you really have made your way around the dial. Um, one of those is B&B's prison doctor, Brian Carey, who was in cahoots with Sheila. So what do you remember about being on B&B? Um, uh, I was sitting at a restaurant, and the busboy came up, and he had a very interesting goatee configuration. And I said, you know, I really like that goatee that you got. It's kind of like a beer tea, but it's not a goatee. And I <laughs> said, uh, you know what? And I was gonna. I was starting. Had just gotten that uh, the job at B and B, and I said, you know, I think that's gonna be my look. So I break it up, and I so I stole the guy's look, and I introduced <clears throat> that whole thing, and and you know, I worked a lot with Ian Buchanan, who's there's nobody funnier than him, and you know, and then you know the uh, Kimberly Brown, and. It was a very pleasant experience. It was a half hour, and, you know, it was an easy, and you had that beautiful CVS uh, was next door to the farmer's market and all that stuff over there. So I enjoyed when I did that and Y&R. Mm-hmm. Um, why did those stand out? What, what, what about Y&R stands out? Well, my first acting job in 1975 was an under five on Young and the Restless, uh, Flowers for Miss Brooks. Oh, I was here before. Well, I'm glad I caught you this time. Those are my uh, <laughs> under five lines. And, Nicely done uh, with the memory. We, well, every actor remembers their first speaking lines in a movie or on television. But, uh, yeah. So when I went back to do Harrison Bartlett, uh, for I did that for about a year over there after General Hospital. Back That was like in 2000 five or six or seven, the dates are all confusing because it's all, it seems like I've been doing one form of a soap opera forever. Pretty much, you have. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, and even when I wasn't doing one, I was down in Florida, it seemed like I was in a soap opera down there. So, (laughs) but uh, the, um, 
the uh, uh, working over at that CBS, you know, and having that all those restaurants and stuff right right in your backyard. It was, you know, I think that you can't beat that. You know, uh, you don't you, you didn't have to go. You just walk across the street and you had everything. And it was a fun show. Um. So after B and B, though, going back, you anchored this General Hospital spinoff, Port Charles. Uh, yes. Along with Lynn and and John Lindstrom, so yes. uh, you were there for three years. Uh, are your memories of that show fond? And what stands out to you about that that time? Well, uh, at the time, I kind of referenced it as a paper route because uh, you know when kids have paper routes, they get up and they deliver their papers. You know, it's about a half hour, and that's how they make their little. We we for some reason they. Because we had been had seniority, they put our scenes first up. So when we taped, we taped it, started taping at eight thirty. By nine thirty, we were finished and on our way home. And it was like, well, this is like a paper route. Now, <laughs> now what? You know, so what are we going to do for the rest of the day? You know, what'd you do for the rest of the day? I, you know, hung out. <laughs> but they, but they worked. We worked. You know, every day, and um, you know, I I know that Lynn and myself and John, you know, we kind of really wanted it to be good and wanted the best and wanted to do it and you know get the stories you know really flush them out and and because it was like, who gets this opportunity to to you know do a General Hospital spinoff, but yet it wasn't the it wasn't. You know, it didn't coincide with what was going on in General Hospital, so it was another part of town uh, because the, the the they couldn't sync it up, you know, so that it was you know kind of that extra half hour of General Hospital. You know, like when they did, didn't they take another world and make it an hour and a half or something? Yeah. One of the so it's not that this was going to be an hour and a half of General Hospital; it was a separate entity, and so. Even though we used the nurses' station and some of the and and you know people used to drop over uh, to to work on it, but they were just like guest stars, mm-hmm. you right. know. So, but it was you know definitely fun. I you know the, the all the young actors that came on the interns, the the uh, the Michael Dietzes and the uh, Jay Pickett's and. Uh, in fact, I just got a call from Michael Dietz a minute ago. He wants me to meet, go meet him and Jay Pickett today at four o'clock. So you know, we still get together from time to time because we—it was such a specific fun time, and now it's almost twenty twenty-one years ago or whatever it is. That's amazing. That's so nice too. Yeah. Um, now, in the mid two thousands, you went back to New York to play a bad guy named Keith Morrissey on As the World Turns. Oh, yes. Uh, so that's where you first encountered Maura West, who is now GH's Ava, and you also became very friendly with Martha Byrne. Um, I love Martha Byrne. Love her. She was um, really, I'm, you know, very much in, in, still, you know, in contact. And when she comes to town, we always get together. And, you know, I, it was a, a highly enjoyable year of my life, uh, you know, living in Columbus Circle and going, but it, it was a lot of, they really, like, I was there like five days a week for the first three months. They just wrote this Keith guy heavily, and it was like, 
every time I'd get out get back into the city at 5.30 to go to dinner, I'd be sitting at that Serafina's on Broadway, and I'd, and I'd be pulling these pages, and I'd go, Jesus, it's another 50 pages for tomorrow. And, you know, they'd pick you up at 5 in the morning, and it was like, I was working. It was a lot of work, but it was with, you know, the great Michael Park and with, uh, you know, and so those guys you know, had done it and we, we it, and I had done it. So we got, we, we handled it. It wasn't like, you know, oh man, but, you know, it was fun. We made it fun. You had like the opposite schedule that you had at Port Charles, in other words. Yeah. Now, <laughs> yeah, now it was a full day and there was, yeah, no more paper out. <laughs> um, so did you ever cross paths with your GH son, Roger Howarth? Did you overlap um, on world turns? I did. He, 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 you know, he, I would see him and hi, Roger, how are you? And, um, but the studio out in Brooklyn was like five floors and, uh, there was no elevator and there was so, you know, I, Roger might've had like a dressing room up like in the, you know, in the bell tower. I don't, I don't know where he was. <laughs> and, you know, I had, I, my storyline never crossed paths with him. So I, I, you know, other than just seeing him in the makeup room, in the green room, uh, that's about, you know, uh, until he came, but I, you know, I, I had met him before, and <clears throat> you know, I knew him, but I just, it's just, we just didn't have any uh, dealings. Mm-hmm. So your most recent return to GH was in 2013, the year the show hit the 50-year mark. And then in 2017, you marked your own 40th anniversary on the show. And Ken, I have to tell you that working on the Digest tribute to you was something that brought me to tears multiple times because so many people that I talked to had such amazing stories about you and they just love you so much and can't imagine their lives without you that it was really, really touching. Well, I, I pay pay a lot. Of <laughs> well you done. gave them your paper route money. Um, um, yes, I was giving them paper route money, <laughs> but uh, you know the the way I've always approached soap operas, and you know I've given the speech to uh, uh, the, I had to give the speech to to Mary Beth Evans because she was always such a panic about, and I said, listen, we may have eight scenes today, but let's just attack it as a eight course meal. All right. Let's enjoy our soup. Let's have our salad. Let's have our, you know, it's, you can't, you know, they're not going to bring the whole dinner at one time. So let's just not panic, you know, and you know, some actors panic over a lot of too much, but I try to calm them down and say, let's just have fun. Let's enjoy this bowl of soup. Okay. And that's, that's, the only way to attack soap operas, and <clears throat> so I, I try and have fun uh, at, at work on the job. Uh, a lot of laughs. If they're, you know, now it's hard because we have to move so fast. So it's, uh, it's, you know, we're cranking it out now. Uh, that's okay. You know, I can move that. I can eat that soup faster. <laughs> I, I can finish that salad quicker. Well, what did hitting that milestone mean to you of 40 years? Yeah, you know, it's that old Woody Allen joke. Basically, I felt like I've been underpaid. <laughs> 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 yeah. So, Good answer. Uh, yeah. But now, you know, as I close in on 42, 
uh, believe me, the last two have been the toughest. Uh, um, but, you know, when I still get to work with Lynn Herring, who, you know, uh, I pretty much talk to her every day. We talk, we're very, very good friends. And, you know, so we love that any kind of Scotty Lucy business. Uh, you know, I love so do we. <laughs> with Jackie and, you know, and my beloved uh, Maura West, you know, I, I worked with her. I had one, a couple scenes with her on As the World Turns and, and she was just, you know, I said, oh, geez, if I ever got to work with her, uh, this would be a lot of fun too. And she, you know, was very close with Michael Park and we all got to know each other and we would hang out at Grand Central Station a few times. And I just thought she was the greatest, uh, you know, and when she came to General Hospital, of course, I hightailed it up to Frank's office and said, if you don't know what to do with her, I've got, you could throw her my way. But, <laughs> but you know, I had, by that time, it was, no, we have other plans for more. <laughs> but I managed to be that guy that's, you know, Scotty is still, you know, will do anything he can for David Jerome. Mm -hmm. um, so when I get to work with Maura, another highlight of the day, uh, or with Roger, or with any of them, to tell you the truth, there's nobody I, I, I go, oh, I'm stuck with, you know, them. So I have uh, a lot of fun with the actors that I get to work with down there. So we know that the Nurses Ball is coming up. What can you tell us about filming that and just the experience of being with the actors all day? Yeah, we have some fun stuff coming up. The, the Nurses Ball is going to be fun, fun acts, fun stuff, fun stuff going behind the scenes. So, uh, you know, we, we shot all that last week. And, you know, again, it, the Nurses Ball is like what it used to be like in the 80s uh, because everybody's there. You know, and everybody's, you know, kibitzing and having a good time. Back in the 80s, you know, when we had a dress rehearsal and then they taped it, every, all actors were in their rooms, the doors were open, there was a lot of visiting, a lot of fun, you know. You'd go to Susan Brown's room and she'd have a little, you know, coffee and crumpets and you'd sit around and you'd go to, you'd talk to, go visit Peter, you know, and, you know, and then you'd, so, you know, so it was when you get the when you have the nurses ball, you have all so many actors there that I've known over the, you know, most of them for decades. It's it's a field day for me. You know, you're making me think about how Finola Hughes said that she thinks of you like a brother because your dressing rooms were next door to each other and you always got to hang. Uh, yeah, Finola and I did a, a movie together, too, where, uh, we were a boyfriend and girlfriend in a movie, which went against everything she, you know, was very difficult for her because she's always played that Anna Devane finds uh, Scott Baldwin, sleazy Scott Baldwin. But she had to, you know, oh, uh, this is the scene you're going to have to kiss me, Finola. Uh, uh, it was a ghost movie we shot in uh, North Carolina. It was fun. It was fun. But, yeah, and, you know, when I was younger, unfortunately, next door – my dressing was Jane Elliott, and you know, if you if you got a hold of her, she's got stories, you know, uh, because you know she was. What is he doing over there? <laughs> what were you doing over there? I who knows. <laughs> 
Um, now, you've really mentioned so many um, amazing co-stars that you've worked with that you also consider friends. You know, who else are you still in touch with from all of your soap experiences? Oh, you know, I still see uh, John Stamos. I still, you know, I see uh, uh, everybody. I mean, the ones that, you know, I, I, I have a little dealing still with Jane. You know, she's in, Jane Elliott's in town still, and she's uh, around. The only person that, you know, is, I, I, and I, you know, keep threatening and to to come over, and he keeps saying, you know, come, uh, is, you know, the great Tony Geary over in Amsterdam, you know, uh, he, he, you know, he disappeared. So he's gone because, and so I, I, I used to have, you know, email him back and forth, uh, uh, somewhat, but, uh, you know, I wish I could see more of Tony because he was a very unique, one of a kind and, and a very, very funny sense of humor. So, uh, but everybody else that I've ever worked with that, you know, I still kind of, you know, see them or talk to them. I always love when you post with like a Robin Matson. Oh, Robin. Yeah. Gee, yeah. We had a, Robin and I were, you know, really good friends and palled around all the time. And, and, you know, she's, uh, yeah. Another one that was, uh, spent a lot of time, uh, with her in real life, hanging out, doing fun stuff. But she's, you know, she's she's as crazy and as wild. She's, you know, she's just like Betty Davis to me. She's, you know, she, she's, a, you know, whenever I go to dinner with her, I still get a, a hoot out of her because she's just so, you know, funny. Well, you really have worked with so many incredible women over the course of your career. Uh, we're going to do a little lightning round here with some of them. So we'll say a name and you tell us what comes to mind when you think of them. So let's start with Jeannie. Jeannie was, you know, we started together. We got new cars. I remember like it was yesterday. She said, I just got my first car, and it was a little yellow Fiat. And I I said, well, look at mine. I just got a Corvette. So, I mean, (laughs) her and I were like these kids that kind of got uh, got lucky, got got the, you know, they decided to go, let's give the young kids a chance and run with that ball. And they did, and it worked. And, you know, so, you know, Jeannie has some fond memories. She always tells me. But, you know, when she tells me, like, do you remember that time we were in the, you know, and I said, I don't remember that. I remember that. So we each have different memories from those from those periods. But, you know, she, she and I, you know, kicked it off and started it. We were, the you know, the first, uh, the first two kids in, in daytime to have, major story so yeah what about what about jackie zeman oh and jackie when she came on oh my goodness when she rolled into uh the studio desi lou and i had been screen testing girls uh with um for bobby and they in the scene in the screen tests i had to pour a glass of wine and give it to the uh to to the bobby character and for some reason, it was real wine, and by the time I got to the fifth Bobby, I was a little loopy, and uh, <laughs> and I said, and the director who was doing the test said, well, nobody told you to drink the wine, you know. I said, well, but it was here. It was part of the seat. So anyway, but so the next day, this stretch limousine pulls up outside of Desi Lou, and I said, who's in that? And the door opens, and out gets Jackie in a fur coat, and 
they said, well, that's your new Bobby Spencer. She was just right off of One Life to Live. And I just still see it like it was yesterday. This, she was glamorous. And I, I said, that's Bobby? That's the girl that I'm, that's the Bobby that, you know, is going to be the Bobby Spencer? And she had a mink coat, and she was a, looked like a million bucks, like a Hollywood starlet getting out of that limousine. And that's, it's ingrained in my mind forever. Oh, that's so sweet. Um, yeah. What about Lynn Herring? Uh, you know, I met Lynn Herring at a John Stamos party, and she made a crack about, I used to watch you in college. And I says, what? You know, and like, you know, wait a minute, I'm not that much older than you, or <laughs> am I? You know, so she, she was always like, she still makes that joke, except I think now it's like high school, you know. <laughs> Or, or now it's even like, yeah, I used to watch you when I was in grade school. But <laughs> yeah, she just keeps at, getting at, younger, uh, Ken. Come on. Yes, I know. She gets, I get older and she gets <laughs> younger. But I, I remember she was with, at the time, you know, Wayne, her husband. But I liked her. We, and then she came on, and or then she was on General Hospital. And then, then somebody came up with, uh, we're going to hook you over with Lynn and, you know, and I clicked with her right away, you know, as far as the scamming. She's a scammer like Heather was. You know, I like these scamming girls that are, you know, feisty. And so, yes, that's that's my memory of her uh, meeting her with the, before we even worked together. And what about Shell Danielson, who, of course, played Scott's wife, Dominique? Oh, Shell Danielson. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, she um, was the nicest person. You'd she wouldn't hurt a fly, and she had this. When we were kids, we grew up with little Italian greyhounds, uh, Gypsy One, Gypsy Two, Gypsy Three. So we these little funny little Italian greyhounds. She had one. And it just always made me laugh because little greyhounds always make me laugh because they're just so funny looking and skittish and and, and crazy. And she had a, a little Italian greyhound. So, you know, I was like, and then, so then, then eventually I, out of the blue, they said, we're going to hook Scott. He's going to fall deeply in love with her, but then she's going to be, they're going to, she's going to die. So she was the second you know, big love of Scotty's life, and she was, you know, just so different than than the the Robins and the Lynns and the, you know, she was just so, um, like she's just so nice. She was so nice and you know, and and fun to work with in a different type of way, where you just, you know, she just. I think that whatever she did, she brought out a whole other side of the Scott Baldwin character who had now, you know, was gone way over the top. He's wearing yellow suits and yellow hair, and he's got, uh, you know, um, you know. We were, there was a period in the 90s where it got really hammy, and we were doing a lot of, you know, almost honeymooner comedy and I Love Lucy comedy, and, you know, and then John Stamos came on and played himself like we were at the Brown Derby. We, we, we did some fun stuff that was, you know, Right out of I Love Lucy episodes, but so then the Shell character came around and, and grounded the Scotty character into a different, uh, otherwise you know 
we, we would have just spun right off into space. <laughs> um, and I know you did mention working with her, but what do you think of when you think of Mary Beth Evans? Well, you know, again, the, the, the seven-course meal speech. <clears throat> but because she was always so like, can we, can we run the lines? Can we run the lines? And I said, Mary Beth, Mary Beth, we got the lines. We, we, we don't, let's not panic. And but I really liked her. She was, you know, I'd worked with her over on rituals, and then they, then you know, she came to General Hospital, and I think I married her on General Hospital too. She was uh, one of my wives. Lucy that, stopped I, the wedding, I believe. What exposed her as a fraud, Lucy? Somebody I think, did. Yeah, I think Lucy might have interrupted that wedding and said she's a gold digging <laughs> fraud. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, Scott really was the heart and soul of that recent anniversary episode that aired where we saw him, you know, dealing with the loss of Gail. Um, you know, what was that like for you to film? Well, you know, it was funny because the director said to all of us, I know you don't know what this show is about, but I do. So trust me. And it's it's only going to work if Ken Schreiner does some acting. I said, I beg your pardon. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, and then Lynn reminded me of that and said, you know, so whatever happened, uh, you know, it was by accident, <laughs> but you know, because we played, we, but you know, when I got to have a scene with Jeannie and then Jackie and then Lynn and Denise Alexander and, you know, and it was nice. I know that Susan would have loved that they played this tribute for her. And I, you know, and I know the when the, when we did the thing for Peter and little Carly Schroeder came back, that was another one that was, you know, uh, you know, when you go down the, the, the history, the road back in time and, and really salute these characters that have recently passed away in real life as well, you know, it's, it's not, you know, I, I don't want anybody else to pass away. I don't need any more, you know, uh, tribute shows. So let's just, you know, hope that nobody goes. Uh, ditto here, here. Um, yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, we could certainly talk to you all afternoon. You have such amazing stories, um, but we thank you for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. I'll see you guys. Bye, Bye Ken. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Ken Schreiner for being our guest. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast.